This is the Cycling Over 60 Podcast, Season 2, Episode 7, Meet My Coach, Part 2. I'm your host, Tom Butler. In a bit, we will continue with the interview with my new coach, Lisa Ballou, but some other info first. I'm not going to go over much from my week. I'm 25 days from the end of my 10-week program, and that's a focus on dropping some weight before continuing my next cycling challenge. I have not seen the results that I expected from this program. I will have a lot to analyze about what is going wrong. Now that I'm working with Coach Lisa, my program is getting modified anyhow. If you listened to the last episode, it ended with Lisa saying that she thought I should consider getting a new bike. So I've spent the last week checking out new bike options. And Judson, I got the okay from Angel Kelly for a new bike already. I was blown away this week by just how many factors I had to consider in making this decision about what bike to get. Lisa recommended a Canyon Endurace. Here is what I learned from looking at that bike. First, I knew if I was going to pick up a new bike, it would be an endurance bike like the Endurace. The June 30th episode looked at the upgrade that Garen did to a specialized Roubaix, and that is an endurance bike. While he was looking at different bikes, I decided that if I ever upgraded, I would also go that direction. The only other option would be to get a gravel bike, but for what I'm doing, an endurance bike just seems to make a lot more sense. I wouldn't be looking at a performance bike because I don't want that aggressive of a frame geometry. I am sure I would find it to be much less comfortable on long rides. It is going to be a big adjustment for me even with the endurance bike. The frame geometry is going to be a big adjustment for me. I guess one option would be to get a touring bike, but the only information that I could find comparing a touring bike to an endurance bike talked about touring bikes being a lot more heavy. So with the thought that I'm going to get an endurance bike, I wanted to look at some other endurance bikes in addition to the Endurace. I wanted to consider the Trek Domane and the Specialized Roubaix. I feel like I know quite a bit about these two bikes from hanging out with Garen while he was choosing a new bike a few months ago. One thing is that I have to say is that I'm very partial towards Trek bikes. I always have been, so I really wanted a reason to get the Domane. However, I'm looking at the Endurace CF8 disc. It is a full carbon frame with Altegra components and is currently priced at $2,499. I would have to spend $1,000 more for Domani SL5 Gen 4, and that has Shimano 105. Now, the Rebuy Sport is currently on sale for $2,999. With Canon, because it's a direct-to-consumer company, there's a $500 delivery fee. That means the Roubaix and the Endurace are fundamentally the same price. They're out of stock of the Roubaix online, so I have to find out even if there would be one in my size nearby. The Specialized website does show that there are a few in my area, but I'm not sure if that will turn out to be accurate. So I have to spend some time calling around to find that out. The Roubaix is equipped with the 105 group set instead of the Altegra components on the Endurace. I think there might be a slight edge to the Altegra group set. The Altegra group is 200 grams lighter than 105. I'm not going to be impacted by that difference. However, I see a lot of writing that says the Altegra is more durable. That is something that is attractive to me. 
As far as the wheel is concerned, they're the same. They're not carbon fiber. Now, here is where a lot of questions come in. I can't find a way to really compare frames. They are both carbon fiber, but there seems to be a lot of difference in frame fiber now. Canyon says that they make three different types of carbon frames. There is SL, SLX, and EVO. The strange thing is that the Endurace CF8 doesn't seem to be any of these since they also have a CFSL8 that is an upgrade from just the CF8. I tried to clarify the situation with the frames with like two different Canyon representatives, but I didn't really get anywhere. I am very new to carbon fiber frames, so everybody else probably knows about differences in modern frame construction, but I found what I learned fascinating. I learned a couple of terms, high modulus and high tension. I don't really know what either of these terms mean, but I feel confident that high tension carbon fiber construction is not anywhere near my budget. I think that's more for professional racing level bikes. As far as high modulus is concerned, it refers to the modulus of elasticity, which I guess is a measurement of stiffness. There are different levels of modulus. There's standard, intermediate, high, and ultra-high. I have come to believe that this represents the four levels of Canyon carbon fiber frames. I think the CF8 disc that I'm looking at represents a standard modulus level. I might find a materials engineer to ask more about this, but I don't need that info right now. The issue for me is that it doesn't seem to be any way to really compare the carbon fiber in the Roubaix to the carbon fiber of the Canyon. The Roubaix frame is labeled as a FAC-10R material. FAC stands for Functional Advanced Composite Technology. I have no way to compare that to the Canyon or to assess if that is standard modulus or something higher. However, the $8,500 Roubaix SL8 Pro also has FAC-10R carbon fiber frame material. You have to get up to the $1,400 S-Works Roubaix to see a switch from FAC-10R to FAC-12R material. I'm interpreting this to mean that the Carbon Roubaix Sport is a higher modulus than standard modulus. Again, I don't really know, but it seems to be a higher quality than the Endurace CF8 disc. There's another factor in the frame design of the Roubaix. There is the trademarked Rider First Engineered, or RFE, system that Specialized has. I'm not going to take the time to explain it here, but go out and read about it. It's pretty interesting. I think it will usher in a carbon fiber construction process that is frame size specific, and I like what they said about it for sure. A final feature, and one that really steered Garen to the Roubaix, is their future shock stem. It is a shock-absorbing technology built into the stem of the Roubaix. And Garen has found that this is really nice and helps his ride be a lot more comfortable. An aspect of buying a Canyon bike that I'm a little nervous about is that it is a direct-to-consumer company. They offer a 30-day money-back guarantee, but you're spending $500 to get the bike delivered. And I feel pretty confident that they're not going to cover that $500 if you find something that you really don't like about the bike. I've never bought a bike that I didn't get from a bike shop, and it just seems like it's really beneficial to have that bike shop where you have a relationship with them. You get to know the mechanics. If you have questions, you know who to turn to. If you have problems, you know who to turn to. So I have to say that 
maybe it's just because I'm old, but I am a little bit nervous about the direct consumer model for something like a bicycle. This all adds up to mean that unless something big happens, I will be grabbing a specialized Bay sport this week. I still have to call and make sure I can find a shop that has one, but if they do, I'm going to go that route. In getting a new bike, even an endurance bike that is a little more forgiving as far as frame geometry is concerned, it's going to put me in an aerodynamic position, but that also creates some problems for me. I talked about my neck pain, and if you go back to the May 26th episode on flexibility, a more aerodynamic position adds to another problem. When we sit at the computer all day, which is definitely something I do, we have our arms forward and we tend to collapse the chest muscles. Riding in an aerodynamic position on a bike adds to this problem. So I'm going to have to be more diligent with having a drop bar bike like the Roubaix to do some functional stretching to make sure that I open up my chest as much as possible to offset what's happening when I'm spending a lot of time on the bike. The last time that I had a road bike for any amount of time, it had Shimano Biopace chain rings. If you've never heard of it, those were oval chain rings that were designed to change the biomechanics of pedaling. I'm going to take some time to research and maybe consider going with an oval chain ring for the Rebay. I know that the industry went away from oval chain rings at one point, but I'm going to be interested to learn more about why they went away from it. I know there's still manufacturers of oval chain rings and kind of what those manufacturers have to say about why they're still producing the oval chain rings. Because to me, there's an element of the biomechanics with an oval chain ring where your feet are actually moving more in the downstroke than in the upstroke that seems to make sense. I think it would be a good idea to bring somebody on during an episode that just really talked about oval chain rings and why or why not they're a good idea. This section looking at my investigation of new bike has been a little long, but hopefully it spoke to the bike nerd in all of you. So ready to jump into the second part of my discussion with my new coach, Lisa Ballou. And I just start out by talking about a lot of things that I wanted her to be aware of as we started working together. Here is the second part of our discussion. There's a few things. One is that if I'm on a flat, you know, I, I feel like I can get in a rhythm and I can go and go and go and go. But basically any in- incline seems to just knock it out of me. And then if I'm going into wind, it just knocks it out of me. You know, even a like a 1% incline, I'm finding pretty hard to go 11 miles an hour. So it was interesting yesterday, I rode the Olympic Discovery Trail and we started in blind just before squim and rode to Port Angeles. So it was about 50, it was 54 miles round trip. Now I thought <laughs> that I was doing a rails to trails trail the whole way, found out that's not the case. And so <laughs> coming out of Port Angeles, I don't know if you've better, ever been on that trail, but coming out oh, yeah. of Port Angeles, there's a decent climb coming oh, out yeah. of Port, Port Angeles. It was, I think probably the steepest climb I've ever been on it. <laughs> Some places along the way, there was an 18% grade according to my computer. Oh my gosh. What I did was I went as far as I could and then I would step off. And 
my measure about how far I could go is my heart rate. So I was letting my heart rate get up to 164 beats per minute, and then I would step off and wait till it got down to 130 beats per minute, which happens fairly rapidly for me. I have a pretty decent recovery. And then I get back on. And so coming up that hill, I think I stepped off three times. To me, that's definitely not my bike. You know, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not the aerodynamics of my bike, Mm -hmm. you know, by climbing that hill. That is, you know, I was not strong enough. And I'm, my bike gear's pretty low. You know, I'm moving at like three miles an hour (laughs) up the hill. Somebody fit could probably walk past me. um, Well, in the Tour de France, when they're doing the mountain stages, the spectators that are running up the hill are faster than the best cyclists in the world. They're running faster than the best cyclists are cycling up those hills. One equipment question that I would ask you first off is about your pedals. Like on your pedals, do you have the pedals that clip in or do you just... What I have is the SPD pedals, which aren't the, I can't remember, SPD, SD or whatever. They're not like the racing pedals, like the dirt. Your pedals, your, your shoes clip into your pedals. One thing that might be just a technique issue is how you're pedaling. Normally on a bike, the main muscles that are being used are the quadricep muscles at the front of the leg and the calf muscles, you know, at the back of the lower leg. But when you're going up hills, what you want to do is you want to switch to a pedaling style where you're doing more on the upstroke, instead of pushing down, you're giving more power when you're pulling up. And you can obviously only do that if you have the shoes that clip into the pedals. So what might be happening is either you're not focusing on the pulling up portion as much, you're not prioritizing it, right? And so you're not using the type of power that needs to be used for the task at hand. Or it could tell you about a relative weakness, right? Like overall, you're a strong person, but relatively your quads and calves are probably stronger than your hamstrings so that when you get to a type of terrain that requires hamstring dominance, you don't have it yet right? Yet being the operative word, because we can do stretch and strength activities that help you access your hamstrings more efficiently, and then can teach you how to actually access them when you need to access them. But a lot of it, it's, you know, it takes so much practice because it's not just as simple as having the equipment, right? It's not just as simple of knowing what to do, like, oh, I should start focusing on the up rather than the downstroke, right? And it's not just as simple as I got to get those hamstrings strong. It's also training your brain to switch the muscle group because your brain gets used to quads, calves, quads, calves, quads, calves. And then all of a sudden, when you want to use your hamstrings, your brain's like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that because I'm supposed to be doing quads, calves. And it's like your brain doesn't let you access the muscle that you should be accessing as readily as you want to. So you've got to train your brain to make those switches too. Well, I think that's a really good observation. I think that when I'm going up a hill, I have a lot of pressure, you know, when I'm on the flat and I'm just kind of going along, there's not as much pressure, but when I get on a steep incline and so that pressure feels like a stomp down, you know, like to go after that pressure, it's like stomp down, stomp down. Now, are you saying it's as important to pull up? Yes. Yeah. Are you saying it's more important or you're saying it's as important? It's almost more important. Like like in order to like the steeper the hill gets, the Mm. more you need to focus on the pulling up than the pushing down. 
The steeper the hill gets, the more you need to pull up. You need that action. And and the reason is, if you think of the physics of it, right? Like you've got the incline of the hill, okay? And that incline is a set number. It's a, you know, it's a mathematical truth, right? It's a physical, it's a physical truth. Okay. And so then whatever speed you're getting, there's a certain point at which the hill wins. So like if you're going three miles an hour, you know, fine. If you're on a 1% incline, you still win. But if it's a 15% incline and you're going three miles an hour, the hill wins. Three miles an hour simply does not overcome 15% incline. So you have to stop. But then when you're pushing down, you, you don't really give yourself the time to create the momentum. You get the force, but not the momentum. The pulling up gets you the driving forward momentum so that you can then use the downward force. So there's a lot of physics involved with it that's just really fascinating. And usually, you know, for me, the the way I progress is, you know, each year, you know, because in the winter, you're in a more of a fallow training period. Every spring, when I start really ramping up my cycling and when I can get to hills in Washington state, what happens first is, you know, there'll be the one hill, right? You know, the same hill, the hill doesn't change. And when I first hit it, I have to stop and get off and push, right? I, I call it hike a bike. Okay. <laughs> so I have, and, and hike a biking isn't isn't easy. It's a good training technique, and it's not to be scoffed at, but it's not your end goal. So the first time I see a hill in in each year, I have to do you know a certain amount of hike a biking, right? The more I practice on that hill, I do less hike a biking, less hike a biking, until finally I don't have to get off the bike, but what I do do have to do is zigzag, right? So instead of going straight up the hill, I have to zigzag back and forth across the hill. So basically I change the incline of the hill with my path, with my trajectory. Then by the end of the season, I can make it up that hill, you know? So like the first time I can go up the hill without getting off and without zigzagging, I feel like Wonder Woman. That's awesome. Okay. There's an element here and I'm I'm wondering like if you if this is something you can comment on or if this is something that it's like, okay, Tom, go get this piece of information from a health professional. Mm-hmm. And then and then let's talk about it. Because there is this element where if I do two twenty minus age, my max heart rate is supposed to be around one sixty. Well, mm-hmm. You know, yesterday I was up like 172, 174, maybe. I feel very confident that my max heart rate is not 160. Yes. But I'm not sure how hard to push it. Right. When I step out like at 164, mm-hmm. I, I'm i breathing a little bit, but I'm not bent over trying to get oxygen in. I feel okay. I'm not stepping off because I can't go any further I'm stepping mm-hmm. off because I've looked at this number and I've decided to step off at that number. Now, it seems like when I get above 155, it's a little bit different from a breathing perspective. And so like oh, to, to also recover, to go from like 164 to 155, it takes longer to recover there. And then from 155 to 130, it happens, it's, it's dropping pretty quick. Mm-hmm. So there is something, I think, around 164. But I, again, I feel... Like like it's not max heart rate. I just truly don't know how to hard to push it. The first thing I'd say is when you're doing the formula that we all know, right? 220 minus your age. Okay. The first thing I would say is for women, that's 226 minus your age. 
So for men, 220 minus your age, for women, 226 minus your age. That formula, it's very helpful, but it's giving you an average and it's giving you a starting point. And then what it's telling you, like when you go out and you can do 167, but your 220 minus your age is 160, what that tells you is you are more cardiovascularly or and cardiorespiratorily fit than your average person of your age. Because that formula is giving information for the person that the medical community is deeming to be average fitness. Okay. So you're above that, right? So we know we've got 167. We know, okay, 167 is a good number for us. But the thing is, 167 is not your max heart rate. 167 is probably 90 to 95% of your max heart rate. Because the whole thing about the heart is, if you ever hit that max heart rate, that is cardiovascular death right? That, that's death. Okay. So, so we never want to know what your max heart rate is in reality, because then why do we need that information anymore? So what we're always trying to understand is a percentage of that, right? Once again, like the older I am, the more I would err on the side of caution. So like yeah. with a 25 year old, I'd say, okay, let's call 167 your 90%, right? But for you, I'd say, let's call that 95%. Okay. And then let's calculate what your actual maximum heart rate is. And then we can start using it in order to get the data that we need to use the data when you're, so that we can then use that data when you're actually functioning. You know, so let's just say that one, I I can't do, I'm an English professor, not a math professor. So I can't do that math that fast in my head, but let's just say that your true max heart rate's 172. Let's just call it that. Then what we'd start doing is calculating your zones so that we could be more sophisticated about your training. If our training day was a long, slow endurance day, we'd be like, okay, let's try to keep you in the 60 to 65% zone. If we were trying to do more of like a tempo day, let's keep you in the 70 to 75% zone. If we were trying to do like a speed day, it'd be like, okay, let's see if we can push you 80 to 85 and see what happens there. I think in the current time that we're in, you know, 2023, right now, data is very popular with athletes, especially endurance athletes, especially triathletes. Triathletes love themselves some data. Okay. Okay. Um, So it's, and cyclists, cyclists love themselves some data. So it's very popular. Just my own personal belief is that I think it's very helpful to pair the two, pair the external objective numerical data and with the rate of perceived exertion information that you're getting. And when you bring the two together, I think that's how the average person succeeds. I think the average person does better when they bring those two paths of knowledge together and they use them in an interactional way. They tend to do better. I see more real people in the real world having success that way. Now, a high-end athlete, rate of perceived exertion only helps them so much and they need to get into that, you know, super statistical data metric stuff. But when I was reading your the information you sent to me, it looked like you were starting to bring some rate of perceived exertion into your thinking process. And I think if we combine the rate of perceived exertion with some of those metrics, 
mathematical calculations with the data we're getting from your, from whatever your sports watches, your Garmin, your cycle computer, it's, you know, whatever technology you have that's giving you the data, then I think we can figure out a formula for real success for you. Like I said, I was stepping off the bike and I wasn't stepping off the bike because it's like, I can't go any further. Mm-hmm. It's very possible that if I said, okay, I'm just going to ride until I can't push anymore, then, you know, I might've found out 170, which right. I did a little math here. If I say that 164 is 95%, mm-hmm. then that means like 172 is a hundred percent. So it's very likely that I was going to go from 160 in like two pedal strokes. <laughs> oh, I was yeah. Gonna- I was going to go from like 164 to 170 and I would have had to step off. So oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, that makes me want to say three things that I hope I, I, I'm saying three. So I hope I can remember the three things I want to say. Okay. So help me remember there's three things I want to say. The first thing that I would say is that there's a kind of three reasons why a person's going to step off of a bike going up a hill, right? Reason number one is their breathing. Your heart rate has simply gotten too high and you can no longer breathe comfortably. Therefore, your brain says, get off the bike and you do. The second reason is muscularly. You simply no longer have the the muscular strength to overcome the challenge. You're muscularly defeated by the obstacle and you get off the bike because you can't push the pedals anymore, right? The third reason though, is that physics have won. The hill is too steep for the amount of speed that you are capable of generating. Therefore, you are beginning to go backwards and you have to get off the bike. It's just that simple. That's the first thing I'd want to say is, you know, so what you're trying to do is you're trying to get better cardiorespiratory health so you don't get up into your anaerobic zone as quickly. You're trying to build muscular strength so that you can overcome greater muscular challenges. And then when you do those two things, you are creating more speed, which lets you overcome steeper physical realities with the physics of of the terrain. The second thing that I would say is that I think there's a difference between could and should. You know, like maybe you could have kept going, but you shouldn't. This podcast is called Cycling Over 60. That's where I think that's where somebody that's, you know, being courted by the AARP, you we need to think about that more, right? <laughs> okay, like my son, he just goes until he can't go anymore. And he doesn't care if he falls off of his bike in exhaustion and flops around until he recovers. He just doesn't care. But I sure the heck care because I don't think that's very smart, you know, for somebody who's about to turn 60 next year. I sure the heck don't want my partner, whom I love, to be treating his cardiorespiratory system that way, right? It's like, okay, I want the alert bell to go off a little bit sooner because even if we could do it, ought we, you know? Right. Um, and, and then the final thing I would say is the answer to that question has a lot to do with what your doctor does say to you. You know, I am in good cardiorespiratory health. I do not have any big, bad cardiorespiratory problems for which I need to account, right? My sister-in-law, though, has a congenital heart problem. So she might be fitter than I am, 
but I sure that I will push myself further than she will because she ought not, right? She ought not test the upper limits of her cardiorespiratory system. And I have the luxury of doing that. She does not. Right. It's definitely something for me to consider. Mm-hmm. I haven't had any evidence of a reason to be careful. Right. Um, and my doctor is well aware of what I'm doing. And, you know, I think I'm okay for, with that. But I think it would be actually informative for me to talk to somebody as part of the podcast and say, hey, you know, talk to a cardiologist and say, hey, I'm just interested, you know, what would I do to mm-hmm. help get an idea about when I should be making a, a wise choice to stop, not the necessary choice to stop or not yeah. being stopped. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess my point is just like, if you have a pre-existing condition, if yeah. you have an underlying problem, if you have a chronic situation, then I think you need to be more cautious when you, yeah. you know, how far you push yourself. If you don't, you have the luxury of pushing yourself further. I think anybody over 55 do the right thing of having a conversation, especially like with my case, when I was sedentary for a long time, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, I definitely had that conversation. Like I'm going to do something here. Is there any concern that you have, you know, and there's also the issue of certain medications you might be on, which I was going to bring that up. A lot of times the medications will affect what your heart rate is doing and then you're not as aware of it, right? Like maybe the medication is speeding up your heart rate. And so your perceived exertion, you don't think you're working that hard, but your heart is getting higher because the medication is doing that. So that's where, you know, you have to be aware of what are the effects of any medications that I'm taking. And once again, I would never say, and most doctors wouldn't say this either. They're not saying don't do it, right? Right. They're just saying, do it in a more thoughtful manner, you know, be more thoughtful with what you're doing. Don't just go out and do something, do it in a very thoughtful way. We're going to have an opportunity to talk about things together. Mm -hmm. I do want to bring up one other thing here, and that's that I feel like I shred my muscles a lot easier than I did when I was younger, which makes total Mm -hmm. sense. It's pretty frustrating. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so there is an element where I have to maximize my recovery. When I was training for STP, Mm -hmm. I was, you know, writing a lot and I was writing hard. I stopped basically pushing myself the entire week before the STP. Mm -hmm. And so that's called tapering. That's a good thing to do. Yeah. And so when I did the STP, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is the first time in a long time that my muscles have felt this way. I feel very confident I had been overtraining mm-hmm. and I was doing overtraining after overtraining over after overtraining. And when I'd given basically a week off, my legs felt different. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to describe it, but, you know, like even just walking up the stairs, I would feel like this irritation uh, kind of with my my muscle group. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so that's one of the things that if I'm going to get faster, Mm -hmm. if if I'm going to, from a leg strength perspective, I think I'm going to have to know how to optimize my training. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting is a factor that you think might be very indirect could be like the key in a case like that. And I would say the nutritional factor could be the key. 
it, it could, it's like, what are you eating and when are you eating it? And so for something like that, you need to think about how many grams of protein you're consuming on a daily basis to kind of set yourself up for a good foundational base. And then you need to be making sure you're getting protein right after you've done, especially an endurance event, okay, very quickly after, because that protein is what's going to help your muscles rebuild. What I think is commonly understood is that when you exercise, people think you're building muscle when you're exercising, but no, when you're exercising, you're breaking down the muscle. And what happens is the muscle wants to rebuild. The instant you break it down, you stimulate the muscle to rebuild and it rebuilds, it builds back stronger, right? It builds back better. So what happens is it, you know, yes, you've done the exercise and you have degrade you you know you've degraded the muscle how do you help it build back stronger it's going to do it it's naturally on its own but once again as we're aging that process is slower and you know it's less in quantity and less in quality so you've got to really help it in order for it to build back to a higher level and the way you do that is you make sure that your body has enough protein because it needs the protein in order to do the muscular rebuilding so you You want to do something like make sure the instant you're done within 30 minutes, ideally of finishing a workout, you are consuming a high protein food source. One thing I like to do, which is, it seems silly, but I love it. I like the Ensure shakes, you know? So, so, you know, personally, I don't think I'm old enough to be drinking Ensure yet, but... But I like the way the dark chocolate ones taste and they're easy for me to consume. They're easy for me to pack and boom, and they're less expensive. They're not like ridiculously expensive. Whereas some of the recovery drinks that are more specifically targeted towards athletes are insanely expensive. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. why I like the Ensure. But other people will just, you know, carry like some cheese sticks, you know, like the ones you'd give to kids, those little kids cheese sticks, just carry those. Those are easy to consume, right? So if you don't have a dairy allergy, that's a really great thing to do, right? Or a peanut butter sandwich, just eat the peanut butter sandwich right afterwards if you don't want to consume an animal product of some sort. So there's lots of like quick, easy, simple protein things you can do within 30 minutes afterwards, but most people don't do it. You know, you're, you get done with a workout, you're getting clean, you're putting things away, you're combobulating, you don't think about it. And then all of a sudden you've missed that optimal window. And, and it's an hour to 90 minutes after your workout, you haven't consumed any protein and you're not really helping your muscles do their rebuilding phase. So I think that's one factor that's really important. Then the other factor that's important is just on a daily basis, how many grams of protein are you getting? Most people are not even getting the bare minimum of what you would think you would need, let alone what you need as an athlete. For an athlete, you need between 0.6 0.6 to 0.75 times your body weight in grams of protein. You know, that's a lot of protein. If I'm 160 pounds and I'm doing Ironmans, that means I need to be consuming 120 grams of protein a day in order to train effectively. And that's not easy to get when you start counting grams. I have to really focus on that to do it. 
I've been figuring that out lately because I, I reduce my calories because one of the things that I'm doing is I'm carting like 20 extra pounds up hills. Yes. And you will be shocked. Like in the running world, one pound costs you two to five seconds per mile. Wow. In the cycling world, it makes you a beast on the downhills. So for instance, when I'm in a race, oh my gosh, I pass people on the downhills. I am so proud of myself on the downhills. I just go zipping past those people. And then on the next uphill, they come zipping past me, of course. <laughs> yeah, I have that. Yes, I do have that advantage on the downhills. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, for me, I really think that my cells, I don't know, you know, somebody could probably explain this, but my cells are not handling sugar as well when I've got extra 20 pounds of fat. Mm -hmm. And so that's my major motivation of getting the fat off. But I'm also interested to see like what that does for my performance. Oh, definitely. I probably do need to revisit and, you know, be finding very lean sources of protein, which I do. I eat, I'm a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And so I eat a lot of legumes and, and quinoa is a pretty good source of protein. I do eat eggs. You know, I probably need to revisit that issue of, of protein and sources of protein. Yeah. And like, if you feel like you're not getting enough with just your food, then you can start looking into supplements, you know, like, like powders and stuff. And that's a simple way to get some extra protein. Like, okay, I, I want to do a smoothie. I'm just going to add some protein powder to it. And then that helps me get more grams of protein in my day because it's sometimes it's hard to get it just from the food. And then it's going to make it, you have to be much more creative if you're doing the vegetarian options. But if you're doing eggs, that makes life pretty easy. I think most vegetarians understand how you add together grains and legumes to create complex proteins. Correct. Well, I feel like we could go on and on and on and I'm loving it. But do you feel like you've gotten the information that you need for us to kind of start this oh, journey? Oh, definitely. Oh, okay. definitely. Because I feel like we've got multiple things we can do. One is we can create a more varied training schedule for you. And that right away is going to help you improve. So I think another thing we can focus on is your nutrition because you've got to train your brain to accept it. And that's especially true when you're exercising, because a lot of times, you know, you'll be exercising if it's hot, your stomach doesn't want to consume things, and then you don't get the amount of nutrition that you need. We can think about your before nutrition to create a better foundational base so you can perform more optimally, your post nutrition so you can recover more effectively. So we definitely can do the nutritional piece. So if we vary your training more, more strategic, varied training training, bring in the nutrition piece, and then start kind of just working with your heart zones and figuring out what works for you, kind of marrying the data with the rate of perceived exertion. I, I feel like you could make a lot of progress. Plus, we need to get you a better bike. You deserve one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll take that to my financial committee. Yeah, there you go. Talk to Santa. <laughs> well, Christmas is coming up. Yeah, so we'll we'll have to talk about that a bit because, you know, part of the reason that I have a more upright bike is because 
my neck and my shoulders would get incredibly sore. Yeah. I, you know, it might be that I've got a larger than normal head. I don't know. You know, that that's interesting. That would be a, an interesting thing to approach. Well, and there's so many factors there. Like a lot of people new to cycling complain about the neck issues. And a lot of it is just how uncomfortable you are on the bike and you don't even think that you're uncomfortable on the bike. But the tell that you are uncomfortable on the bike is the way that you're constantly lifting your chin up and putting your neck into basically an, a spinal backbend, right? Yes. So you're increasing the lordotic curvature of your neck and that's incredibly painful. But you're doing that because it gives you better sight lines. And so the more comfortable you get on your bike, the more willing you are to neutralize the spinal position of your neck. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my neck problems are magically going away. It's like, well, it's because you've become a better cyclist and your bike handling skills have improved. And so you're not doing this kind of fight or flight um, reaction with your neck. You also train the muscles like your, your rhomboids and your, your latissimus dorsi and your trapezius muscles. All of those muscles you think about cycling as a leg activity, but the more you train those upper back muscles, the less neck pain you get when you cycle. Well, I feel like we have a lot of things to talk about and I'm really, really looking forward to working with you. Here. Oh, me too. This is going to be fun. Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, now you're officially Coach Lisa for the Cycling <laughs> Over 60 podcast. I thank you so much for coming on and talking about your experience and, you know, talking to me about some of my challenges and we'll do more of it and I'll have you back from time to time and we'll kind of check in and let everybody hear progress. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more from you. I'd love that. And thanks again for having me. Um, thanks to Allison for recommending me. I really appreciate that. And I just hope all your listeners have enjoyed this and found something useful. Fantastic. Well, I will talk to you later. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Coach Lisa is for sure giving me a lot to think about. First of all, there is this new bike situation. I am still somewhat nervous that it won't yield much improvement, but I'm trusting that she has experienced the difference that a more aerodynamic position makes for most people. It is going to feel very different having someone providing a much, much more detailed training plan. I hope I can stick with it. I really feel the difference in how motivated I am with Lisa involved. One of the biggest things is that Lisa is just a really fun person, no matter what we are talking about. You will definitely be hearing from her again on the podcast. I would really like to hear if any of you have worked with a coach and how you found the experience to be. Please reach out on Instagram or through email. You can find links for both of these in the show notes. I hope you're discovering new places on your bike and new cycling friends with whom to enjoy those places. And remember, age is just a gear change. Thank you.